Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products that they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of service among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. talking to my wife Becky and she was asking how your move was and I said I think it went all good all well but she feels so much farther away than she was before and she goes well she is and I was like I know I am but because I get up so early and you're more of a normal person I feel like our waking hours have synced up now because I'm still getting up at five but you're you know more probably yeah, I'm average two hours seven. ahead yeah exactly and then likewise I'm going to bed at 9 a.m and you're probably 9 a.m <laughs> yes I only am conscious for four hours a day same girl <laughs> So you just moved to the West Coast, best coast. West Coast, best coast. And you're starting a new job so soon. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're back home in your birth place, your birthright location. How does it feel? It feels awesome. It feels like being home. It feels uh, new enough that it's exciting and familiar enough that it's comforting. And my auntie Kay, who's one of my favoriteest people on the face of the planet is driving up on Thursday so we can go to lunch together. And it's all the stuff that I was looking forward to. Like, you know, this, when the job was announced, I was excited about it. And I, Mm -hmm. I like, it was almost like speak no evil. Like I didn't want to jinx it in any Mm -hmm. way, but I was like, I I could see this person all the time. I could see this person all the time. I could have Mm -hmm. more access to, you know, such and such. Cause when you're far away and if your family's not near a major airport, you know, with our higher ed schedules and our performance schedules, it can be really hard to carve out time. Mm -hmm. But normal life does say like, Oh, my Saturday's not too busy. I could just do a real quick road trip. And uh, now I'm getting to experience all those benefits that I was hoping against hope I would get to have and uh, super excited. The only bummer is that we're still, you know, in COVID, so I won't get to give her a big hug, but rain check. You can just do a hard eyes at her over your mask. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
<laughs> so for today's dish, we did a listener grab bag and we got an amazing question from Rachel Fredrickson that is relevant and she wants to know how did Buddy Bear Wilson do on the cross country road trip? He did pretty well. Uh, he was in the car with me in the back seat. We set it up with his bed and almost the entire time he slept with his face on the console. So Buddy. I'd like look down and his head would be right there. And actually a couple of times I'd go to like get a sip of water or coffee and I'd like elbow him in the face. I'd be like, oh, right. <laughs> forgot you're like sleeping <laughs> on the console. Uh, but he did good. As you know, he's not too great with brand new places and people so taking him out of his environment is difficult but for the most part i'd give him a good like g plus a minus oh that's good five years old social anxiety like i'll take a b plus a minus it's an a plus (laughs) (laughs) i'm proud of him especially now that he likes me how many years did it take for buddy wilson to accept me i don't know and i'm not sure we're at full acceptance yet (laughs) the we had another question about our setups so like yeah. uh are the, the instruments that we play and their the shape we use all that geekery we usually ask our guests mm. apparently the listeners are curious so talk to me about your setup delete well as the oboe half of this duo i play on amerigo oboe which i am so head over heels in love with um not to say that Marigo, you know, is the only brand or anything like that. I know that there are lots of really great oboes out there of all kinds of different brands. Um, and it just depends on whichever one feels natural and feels singing and comfortable. And I remember the first time I, I tried this Marigo 901, I was like, my voice, <laughs> it's my voice. <laughs> So that's what I play on. I'm a very happy Marigo customer. And uh, my gouge, I'm currently using a Cooney Bear Michelle gouging machine. I also have used an Inolady machine in the past. Um, and my shape is a Mac Pfeiffer. It's pretty similar to the Mac Plus which I used for a really long time with just a tiny bit more depth to the tone. So yeah, that's my setup. And, uh, and I like it very much. I've been doing a lot of reed making this summer, partially due because of a lack of motivation to actually practice. So I've been experimenting a lot with my reed making, which sometimes I go through cycles with it. Sometimes I find reed making to be tremendously engaging. And sometimes I find practicing to be tremendously engaging. And so this is just a reed making cycle. And uh, I am really happy with that setup. So the Marigo 901, Cooney Bear Michelle Gouge, and Mac Pfeiffer shape on the Chirugi 2 staples. That's what I've been using. How about you, Jackie? I play a... Puchner, Puchner, whatever you're supposed to call it. Sorry to the <laughs> Germans and German Sorry speaking Sorry to listeners. legitimate German speaking listeners. For real, listen. I, I play a 5000C, which just means it's gentleman's model, which for the record is the same bassoon that Sophie Derveau plays. So great minds. 
I think that means I'm just as good as her, right? I'm not going to argue with you on that. (laughs) I'm totally joking for the record. (laughs) I have paired that with a heckle C vocal, but for a long time I played with uh, Huchner vocals as well. And uh, yeah, I use a Fox 2 reed shape or the Dicker reed shape. Although Pullman is at 2,500 feet elevation, so I'm needing to kind of reapproach my reed making. The big piece of advice I've gotten has been widening the shape. And it turns out actually I'm playing on pretty wide shapes already, from what I understand. Mm, I started so shopping around. Okay. And uh, I played a little bit today. I did take some time off for the record while I was doing this move and uh, tried some reads today and they were behaving okay. So I remember the interview feeling like they were really not how I wanted, but today they felt better. So um, I don't know if it's just a matter of these being ones that I cut open here and scraped on here. I've heard that also makes a big difference, but um, I'm going to try to see how I feel with my current setup. So I'm hoping I can make it work. Uh, But yeah, that's what I'm doing. That's very cool. All right. So we got another question from Dylan. What are some early career mistakes slash life lessons that you would be willing to share? I wish that I had more of a happy beginner's mindset towards the beginning and You know, my motivation has always been, I'm behind, I'm behind, I'm behind. Mm -hmm. But that came from a really anxious, negative, competitive place. Mm -hmm. And I wish that I could have had more of a growth mindset, more, I'm okay with where I am, and I know I can get better, but I'm proud of what I've done, Mm -hmm. and I'm happy with myself. Mm Mm-hmm. And honestly, if we're going to get real, one of the biggest factors for helping me get in a better mindset is treating my anxiety, Mm -hmm. you know, with medication and with therapy. So if there are people who are listening right now who are struggling with the same thing, just being constantly down on yourself, struggling with chronic anxiety and um, really negative worldview, I would say do not feel ashamed about getting help because it really does help. It really does help. Probably the last uh, two or three years, there's been such a significant difference for me just because I've been actively doing the work to change my thought patterns. And it helps me, but it also helps the students that I'm mentoring. So yeah, that's, that's what I would have done differently is definitely treat myself with more kindness and with more of a happy beginner's mindset. What about you, Jackie? Yeah, your, your comment about um, being too competitive when you were younger really resonates with me. I definitely used the competitive nature of our field as a way to kind of like psych myself up or pump myself up when I was younger. And that would be kind of where I got a lot of my mojo is like considering that anyone else who played the same instrument as me was a competitor. Mm -hmm. And uh, in retrospect now, because I think now I'm a very collaborative person and now I get a lot of my mojo either internally or by feeling inspired by what other people do. And that's a lot more 
of a mature place to be for the record. And, uh, you know, like I love being on social media, like, uh, on Instagram, so much of my feed is just other women bassoonists doing their thing. And it makes me excited. And I love collaborating with other people and seeing what other people have, uh, going on like Carola Moore. I don't know if you watched her Instagram stories the other week, but she did when she did all the wise and borns in one day. And I just remember like several times throughout the day being like, I got to check in with Kara's stories and like mm-hmm. listening. Like, oh yeah. I remember that one. Oh my gosh. The, the, I can't believe she's still going and knowing it had been like 10 hours since she started. Whoa. I was just like, <laughs> this is amazing. And I know when I was 22, 25, I would not have been in that mindset. So mm-hmm. uh, what projects are the two of you working on? And uh, I want to preface this by saying I do have some answers of things I'm just currently embarking on. But I recently, speaking of social media, posted um, kind of an honest thing that I had been lacking motivation since March, really, with the pandemic mm-hmm. to keep up with my running, keep up with my remaking, keep up with my practicing. And I got honestly, probably 30 responses from people private messaging me going, Oh my God, me too. Yeah. Um, And I remember feeling like, uh, I I'd heard several people be like, Oh, I took some time off during the quarantine and it made me feel like I had permission to take some time off and I didn't Mm -hmm. have to keep holding my feet to the fire. And with how many people wrote me saying they felt validated by that post, I feel it needs to be said that whatever you see people presenting, that may be true because they're thriving at a particular time, but many of us are not. And it's okay if you are not, and it's okay if you're not practicing nine hours a day. It's okay if you're finding it hard to establish goals in a reality where we don't know when we're, we'll be able to perform again. So I just want to say that because it seemed like people really needed to hear it. And I'll just say I took probably two and a half weeks off of practicing. I don't know that I've really re- made reads properly and attentively like I sh- would normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, March to mid-July mm-hmm. uh, stopped running completely. Now that the school year is starting and we're starting remotely, I feel very much accountable to begin a routine again and behave mm-hmm. professionally. It is my job, but uh, people really needed to seem to hear you're not the only quote unquote imperfect one. People are taking time off. People are struggling. I'm struggling. I'll just come out and say that. I mean, I've been making reads. That's been probably the most consistent thing that I've been doing, but it's been a lot of experimentation of different ideas, like different knife sharpening techniques and different out of the, you know, norm things. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I really, my practicing has been not very good. I mean, towards the beginning of the quarantine, I was doing scales and I was reading through some pieces, but it's, it's really tapered off and uh, you're right. It's really hard to practice when you don't know when you'll be able to play with people next. And it's really hard to make reads when you don't know when you'll be able to play on them. And yeah, so I've been, I'm in that boat too. I've been struggling too. So how about we end with um, just describing some projects that we're wanting to kind of take on in the fall semester 
and whatnot. Do you have anything that you're got in mind to keep you busy? I do. So I am part of a duo. We call ourselves the Rintra duo. It's me and Jonathan Yarrington, my voice colleague at USM. And we have been the last couple of years in a commissioning project uh, inspired by Vaughn Williams' Blake songs. And so we have commissioned three other works for oboe and tenor. A lot of, you know, pieces for oboe and voice are for oboe and high voice. Um, and a lot of those are for soprano. And a lot of those have a lot to do with motherhood and, you know, stuff that's like a little weird for a tenor to sing in mm-hmm. a concert sometimes. Although not super weird, I guess, but it just doesn't seem like it's the right combo for that mm-hmm. music. Um, and uh, so we've been commissioning music this music is now coming to fruition this summer. And uh, we have plans to learn it, perform it, and record it. So this will be both of our first recorded albums. And we're super pumped about it. First of all, because that combination is gorgeous, oboe and tenor, and there's not a lot of music for it. There's really just a few little things here and there, and a, a lot of them are transcriptions. So we're excited to contribute to the repertoire and excited to perform together and to perform works of composers that we are absolutely in love with. So that's my main project. Um, that and, you know, really getting a lot better at teaching online. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what about you? I have an idea, um, cause I've really been struggling with like not having performances. And one of the recent MQVC summer sessions was about interpreting Vivaldi. Mm. And they had on Stephanie Corwin, who plays Baroque bassoon, and then also Andrew Brady, who plays modern bassoon, but has a real passion for Baroque music. And they were talking about how modern bassoonists can incorporate performance practice and style in a way that's conscious but acknowledges that we're playing modern instruments. And mm-hmm. um, so they're talking about ornaments and they're talking about, you know, how to use vibrato and that type of thing. And that whole ball of wax has always been super intimidating to me. Me too. If I'm being honest, I've always kind of avoided Baroque music, not because I don't like it, but because I have a fear of doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And so part of the, um, advice they gave was to like learn a piece and then find every recording that you can possibly get your hands on and study it and just kind of allow that to create a knowledge base. And then you'll know what you want to, what's common, what's outside of the box, what's um, a good idea to emulate or, or that type of thing. And so I decided I'm going to take a handful of broke pieces and just start doing that. And instead of using, um, I don't know when or even if I'll ever get to perform this as a disadvantage, try to use it as an advantage of like- Happy beginner mindset. Yeah, it it would normally be like, oh God, what if it's wrong? I don't want anyone to hear it. And with this, it's like, they might not. (laughs) 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 And um, I thought, you know, once I get it to a point that I'm excited about, uh, maybe I can, you know, hit up some relevant people to take some private lessons or that type of thing. And, you know, that maybe it turns so into cool. one of these um, performance videos 
Uh, maybe it's just for me, you know, maybe I send it to my mom. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to start to delve into the magical world of Baroque rep on the modern wow. bassoon that is not ensconced in fear. <laughs> <laughs> I Wish love me luck. <laughs> That's an awesome goal. Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de more, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and Lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double read accessory needs, Nielsen is ready to help you. This episode is brought to you in part by Barton Kane, revolutionizing gouged shaped and profiled bassoon cane with precision, consistency, and love since 2012. Leave the cane processing to us. Free up time to practice, take a romantic dinner cruise, or cuddle on the couch with your cat on a rainy day and listen to Double Read Dish. Enter coupon code Double Read Dish Rocks My World, no spaces, for free shipping on your next Barton Kane order. That's www.bartonkane.com. We are beyond excited to welcome to the podcast, Catherine Chen, Principal Bassoon of the Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra. Thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Would you talk us through how you got started on the bassoon? Well, my journey into bassoon wasn't until a little bit later in my life. I started bassoon when I was 14. And before that, I played the piano and I also played the cello. Uh, I started piano when I was four and I started cello when I was five. I didn't know what a bassoon was until the high school band teacher told me, you look like a bassoon player. I'm so curious what that means. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think he just wanted bassoonist. <laughs> hey, you over there. You look like a bassoonist. <laughs> I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> I'll try it out. <laughs> we had um, the, the public high school that I was at had a really strong band program. And luckily, they had a couple nice Fox bassoons. And so he gave me the number to the local bassoon teacher. And I started taking bassoon lessons with her the summer before going into high school. Her name is Joyce Kelly. And when I started high school, my sister played the clarinet. She was in the top wind ensemble. And, um, you know, I just aspired to be her. (laughs) And, you know, we did all the musical things together. We sat next to each other in youth orchestra because she was first year clarinet I was first year bassoon and we would just nerd out on recordings and we would go to concerts together and she was auditioning for uh, clarinet for college 
And so I kind of watched her go through the process of auditioning and applying for places. And that just inspired me so much. And um, I just, you know, decided that I wanted to be a bassoon player. And in January of my freshman year, uh, her teacher, Anthony Brackett, he was the woodwind quintet coach at Juilliard Pre-College. And he invited me to go to New York and, you know, invited me to go see the Juilliard Pre-College division. Uh, It's a Saturday program. And so I spent all day there. I kind of just like, how do you say, I guess, like audit the classes. (laughs) And um, I met the bassoon teacher. I got a lesson with him. And um, in January, I started studying with Mark Goldberg, the the teacher there. And he encouraged me to audition for pre-college in May. I got in. So I did pre-college for three years. And then I went to Curtis for five years studying with Daniel Matsukawa. And then I got my first job out of school with the Toronto Symphony. Um, I was associate principal there. And after one season in Toronto, I won my job in Milwaukee. And now I'm in Milwaukee. (laughs) (laughs) You are um, professionally relatively young. You are able to hit the ground running. Even educationally, you know, Curtis is one of the most coveted competitive institutions. And so I imagine, or my perception would be that you were very focused in your practice and in your preparation. And so I would be interested in what that looks like and how it's evolved high school, college, professional life, because a lot of us have a learning curve. Even previous guests have said, oh, I had to learn how to audition. I had to learn what a committee was looking for. And you were able to bypass a lot of that. So I'd love to hear about your process in preparation and practice. Absolutely. Well, when you're younger, um, there's obviously a way, uh, a steeper learning curve. You know, everything kind of just picks up quickly when you are just starting the instrument. Um, And I was just really fortunate to have had such a great music foundation from having played the piano and having played the cello. And so I had an understanding of music and phrasing and like sound quality. I think also because I wanted to emulate the cello when I started bassoon, you know, the only thing I had to really learn was how to make the reed and blow into an instrument, which was so unnatural for me. (laughs) And so I think I just had this work ethic because I was, like hyper focused in high school like I saw what my sister did and so I wanted to be prepared by the time I was a senior to be able to have the best chance to go to a a good college and I think I'm kind of a project-oriented person I like having things in the horizon to uh, work on and like look forward to and um, so I guess I was always ambitious and then in college that was a whole nother learning curve because you're surrounded by really talented musicians and you're it's not just you anymore like you're in a pool 
it of like everybody has the same goals as you. And so it was no longer like you're the big fish in a small pool. <laughs> so yeah, it was just another adjustment period there. And, um, but it was such a nurturing uh, studio and experience. And my teacher was so supportive. And there were times where I thought, oh, I don't, I don't even know if I'm good enough, you know, because studio classes and lessons, they're meant to, um, it's for adversity, I guess, and to, to make you grow. You're, you have to constantly grow and have that growth mindset. Yeah, so it was okay the first few years. And then in my fourth and my fifth year, I was like, oh, man, I need to start getting a job. <laughs> And so um, Toronto, when, when I was uh, auditioning for Toronto, I had been taking an audition every 10 days or so. And it was really like my last audition before I was going to graduate. And it was really like a make or break it audition, as you will, if you will. Um, and I had been trying so hard to get a foothold into the orchestra industry. And unfortunately, I fell ill and was bedridden for a couple of days leading up to the audition. And um, you know, a lot of things went wrong. Like I left my music at home and I had to go home and get it. And then I missed my flight. And <gasps> I was, <laughs> and then, you know, I was able to get on the very next one, but I didn't get to Toronto until very late the night prior and you know when I was delirious and bedridden I booked an Airbnb and I didn't read the fine print and when I showed up to the apartment I thought I had the apartment to myself but I was actually staying on somebody's couch <laughs> uh, <laughs> both Jackie and my mouth are open <laughs> that is that is a nightmare. That is like yeah. an audition prep slash introvert nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I didn't know what Airbnb was. And so my first time trying it. And so, you know, the fine, like the title was Spacious Loft in the Heart of Downtown Toronto for $30. <laughs> so I was like, this is amazing. Oh my gosh, I need to get this. <laughs> Oh my God, what happened next? I'm like on the edge of my seat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was, he was fine. I just felt so awkward the entire time. And, you know, I asked him if I could play a few notes before going to bed because it was already like 9.30 by the time I got to the apartment. And he said no. So it's like, okay, I'll just, you know, get ready for bed. And I can't up. believe he said no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was in an apartment building and... He didn't want noise. And uh, so, yeah, I I showed up to Roy Thompson Hall at 9 a.m. the next morning. And I was the first one to play. And at that point, I had finally just felt a sense of normalcy. Like, I, I'm so relieved I made it here in one piece. I don't even care anymore. <laughs> I'm just going to play. Sort of release and like release um, made me 
not care so much because I had just gone through all of this other stuff going on in my life. Like, like this is the one thing that I can control and I'm going to turn this into a really positive uh, experience and situation. I'm here to give a performance to a small group of people and I'm going to turn it into a great thing instead of a negative. And so I won the audition in April and I came back for a two week trial in June and they hired me after that. Um, so that was really, really exciting. That was like one of the happiest days of my life. And, um, and Milwaukee was different because at that point I had uh, already gone through one season of a pro- in a professional orchestra. It was a lot of adjustments, you know, just going from school workload into professional workload. I was used to playing three orchestra concerts a year. And then I was playing three to five concerts a week. (laughs) Right. And so that was a lot to get used to. And also even just moving to Canada was a big thing, you know, uh, moving to a different country. And I was really, really young. (laughs) And um, that was also a steep learning curve. And I, after, you know, adjusting through all of that, I was still longing for a principal position. And then I saw Milwaukee open up and I asked a few colleagues and all I heard was great things. I didn't know anything about the Milwaukee Symphony, and but I applied. And um, my approach then was to delve even deeper into the excerpts and try to make all of them as singing as possible. So... <laughs> And then you won it. Yeah. I mean, I had a a similar travel. I have the worst, like, traveling issues. I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, I sometimes I'll lose my bags and, you know. um, But, again, it was my fault. I booked the flight from Toronto to Milwaukee wrong. Like, I didn't buy it from Toronto Pearson International Airport. Like I booked it from a small, tiny airport an hour away, and I didn't realize that. <laughs> I didn't realize it until like 11 p.m. the night before I was supposed to fly out. Like, oh my gosh, how am I supposed to get there? So, you know, I finally looked up trains. So I took a train into Kingston, and then you know, from Kingston, the flight was delayed, and when I finally got to Chicago, missed the connecting flight from Chicago to Milwaukee. So again, I got there really, really late and kind of got a little sick. The next morning, 9 a.m., I show up and I'm the first one to play again. And again, it was like, I was like, wow, this sounds, this feels all too familiar. Like, (laughs) I don't even care anymore. I I feel like, you know, I don't feel great. (laughs) I'm just going to do it. But, oh, I mean, when you show up to an audition, you go in with the attitude that you're going to win. There's no point in putting in all of that time and work and preparation into an audition without going in with that sort of like gung-ho attitude. And I actually had a moment of introspection two weeks 
prior to my Milwaukee audition, I was, you know, just practicing in my apartment in Toronto. And I had to like, I had to really think about like, what do I want in my life? Because if I'm going to take this audition and I win this, my life is going to change forever again. And am I really willing to do that? Am I willing to uproot myself and start all over again and build a new life? And I cried and it was, it was a cathartic moment because it would mean giving up my life in Toronto, giving up living in that city and working in the Toronto Symphony. So I told myself then that I would live anywhere in the world just to be principal. Well, and you are a principal. And one, one thing, you know, I, I look at our field and a lot of the principal bassoonists of especially large orchestras are male. You know, I, you're one of the few uh, female principals. And I guess I just wonder how that feels uh, if there's a kind of an empowering aspect to being a young woman and holding this prominent chair. Um, a lot of us respond to Sophie Durbeau so uh, powerfully for mm-hmm. the same reason, you know? So, so maybe speak to us about that experience and the experience of getting your dream and then getting to do it. What is it like living this life as a, a principal bassoonist and, and what's a, what makes a great principal bassoonist in your experience? That's a big question. I was rambling. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. No, you've given me a lot to work with. I might just, you know, go off onto different tangents. We'll see. <laughs> um, well, to start with, I love my job and I'm grateful for it every day. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I have so much room to grow in this chair and in this job. And it's, something that I really it's one of my values um, to always keep learning and never stop you know because you know if you if you stop then it's like oh I've made it okay like I'm not going to play bassoon anymore I, I can pick up something else and you always want to I always want to be better and as a person, as a musician, um, I like to be well-rounded. And um, I mean, being a woman in a leadership role can be challenging, uh, especially when I am also still a little young. And um, it's different from just getting a job. Like when you're in school, all you talk about is, I just, I, I need to get a job or, or you think that that's the end all be all like that's, it's like those Disney movies when the princess finally marries Prince Charming, it's happily ever after. <laughs> it's not really like that. Um, I mean, once you are in a, in an orchestra, your colleagues are like your second family um, because all of them have probably gone through similar experiences as you trying to get to where you are. And they've had to probably move from whatever city into a new city and that are, that is unknown to them and don't really have, you know, a support network in that city. And so, you know, 
once we're in the orchestra, we want to support each other and look out for one another. And I think that's really special um, compared to um, most jobs, I think. There's a set of soft skills that I had to learn that weren't necessarily taught in school because there are so few females. And on top of that, Asian females in an orchestra, like mm -hmm. leadership, principal, bassoon position, I had to sort of like understand that respect is earned and it's not allocated. And um, it requires a lot of patience. And over time, you're able to gain respect from your colleagues and essentially get buy-in from them. And I think something that I've struggled with too, because I'm an immigrant and I grew up in a traditional Chinese household um, and I'm the youngest of three, you're not really taught to speak up, you know, speak your mind. And with all of that, I've had to learn how to be a little bit more assertive and make sure that my voice is heard in things that I really care about. There's, again, a fast learning curve with that, but it's been a, a positive experience. I've been really fortunate to be able to work with really friendly, easygoing colleagues. And I've grown so much from learning these skills beyond winning the job. Did you have an idea of perfectionism when you came into the job? And did you have to kind of scrap that in terms of learning how to be in the job and how to mature into the job and how to interact with uh, different people? Like there is probably an element of trial and error in that. And I know that in my job, that was a huge source of anxiety for me <laughs> because my inner perfectionist just wants to get it right the first time. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts about that growth process and how you dealt probably with, if you have that, I'm just so curious, if you have that inner voice that's saying you have to get it right the first time, has that evolved into something that's a little bit more forgiving? Yes, I have dealt with the exact same issue. Um, I am definitely a perfectionist and um, I think I'm very detail oriented. And so I used to really beat myself up all the time when something didn't go exactly the way I wanted. And I had that inner voice always negatively telling me, you're not good enough this isn't good enough, you need to be better. And it definitely was like that. I had that inner voice for a very long time. And it hasn't been until recently, probably about a year ago, until I finally started being nicer to myself. <laughs> and just knowing that you have a very long career ahead of you. And um, this is more about a space where you can try new things and not necessarily be so perfect. And I actually felt that when I was trying to be perfect, that's when everything would go wrong. Um, because you're trying to attain the unattainable. And we're all human. And music is 
meant to, I think, nourish the human soul. And I don't think that it's supposed to be treated in that way, necessarily. And I mean, I now that I think back about all of my audition failures, I know I've only talked about the positive things about auditions, but trust me, I have not done well in many auditions as, as well. <laughs> and um, I think a lot of the times when I was going into those auditions that I didn't do so well, it was because I was telling myself, this needs to be absolutely perfect. This needs to be flawless. And that kind of gets in the way of your music making. And I think that we are musicians and artists first before bassoonists or, you know, instrumentalists. And our job is to move people and comfort them. And the best thing that you could give to people are, you know, to move them and maybe to get their hair raising on their arms, you know. (laughs) Thank you for that answer. I was actually like really digging it and getting a little bit emotional (laughs) we're talking because like myself five years ago needed that answer so much you know to know that it's not all a deal breaker and not every conversation is life or death and like it's I think it's just really important to hear that perspective from somebody in your position so thank you of course (laughs) Well, and kind of playing on that and along the lines of doing the job, I wonder, this is perhaps a little bit more literal, but when you have a concert with a big excerpt or a big solo coming up, like, I don't know, Rite of Spring or Shostakovich 9, what is your process like for that now that it's it's not an audition setting, it's a, a setting in the performance and how do you kind of mentally and musically prepare for those moments as a professional, as opposed to as a a auditioning musician? Sure. Um, Well, the best part now is that you get to play all of these masterpieces, these wonderful works, and you're no longer just focusing in on one excerpt. Now you have to really dive deeper into the whole thing and um, I find that really exciting just to understand what your role is in the big picture I mean I will normally I'll get a score I'll listen to the recordings I'll probably listen to three or four different types of recordings just to get a sense of you know tempi expression you know, phrasing, um, little nuances in certain places, just to know, especially transitions too. And, you know, I always get nervous right before the first rehearsal because you never know what the conductor is going to do. And so, you know, I just want to be completely prepared and knowing my part. So I'll play through the, with the recording several times as well and then when I'm working on the you know the big excerpts like Rite of Spring, Shostakovich 9, I will record myself and it's not fun it's definitely eye-opening you know when you put a microphone and 
and then you have to hear yourself. But, you know, you are your own best teacher. You are your own set of ears. And at that point, when you're a professional, no one's going to tell you how you're going to phrase it. You have to make those decisions yourself. Mm -hmm. And um, you are your own worst, but also best critic. And, but I also think that that's very exciting, too, because you're able to control uh, and make decisions on how you want things phrased. And it's a chance for your colleagues, the conductor, and your audience to hear you and what you have to say. And I think that's what's so great about um, being in a position, a position of like principal too, because you can really have your voice and tell everybody, you know, every week. In your position, you get to hear a lot of auditions and we are so, we're always so interested in your perspective on the other side of the, of the screen. Um, what impresses you in people who are auditioning and what do you like to hear? I still not have had a chance to be able to sit in, I mean, to, to be on a committee for my orchestra, but I uh, have been able to sit in on final rounds of major positions in the orchestra. And a lot of people have played for me. And the thing that I always tell them when they're auditioning is that you want to find opportunities in the music that makes you stand apart from all the other candidates. And knowing now what my colleagues go through during the audition process, you know, they're sitting on stage for the entire day, listening to over 50 people playing the exact same thing. And so then I, I ask, what do you do to set yourself apart? And if you're able to give yourself an edge over the other candidates and bring that wow factor, there's no way the committee won't hire you. I really look for somebody who has great musical instincts. And I think having a great sound is important. My teacher, Daniel Matsukawa, in my second year at Curtis, he told me, grab their attention with your sound and keep their, intention, keep their attention with your musicality. And I always go by that. Obviously, understanding the score is a huge thing, excerpt, without ever having listened to a recording and, you know, you don't really know what's going on around you at that particular moment. It can sound really obvious to the committee, too, like, because they played the piece so many times, they'll know, wow, this person has no idea <laughs> uh, what the piece is about. And um, I think it's important to know what's going on in the piece at that particular moment. For example, you should know what other instruments are playing with you at that moment and how your excerpt fits into the piece as a whole. Another tip that I give is to really follow what's written, what's printed on the page. It sounds obvious, but you know, they're looking at the page and they could get so bored after hearing 50 people. And 
once they finally hear that one that did what was printed on the music, they're gonna think, wow, this person is so musical. So, you know, following all the dynamic markings. Yeah, I remember Nancy Gore has actually said, you know, we think of this field as so competitive and we are so afraid because it's so competitive. But if 49 people are playing Figaro mezzo forte and only one is truly doing a piano, she said, it's actually not competitive at all. It's very easy to win, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but then it's about putting in the work to make sure you're the one who's actually, you know, doing all those things. So that's great advice. I wonder if you can tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance with the MSO or otherwise. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a perfect performance, but just something that stands out in your mind as a special memory or a performance that's endeared to your heart. I love uh, the music director that hired me in the Milwaukee Symphony, Ado DeVart, and he is very special and dear to my heart. Um, I mean, I when I think back on performances with the MSO, I usually think about a performance that I had with him and we've had so many. The most recent one was back in January when we did Rock Modern Off 2 with him. And that was a really uh, special performance. I think he's able to move the orchestra in a way and we follow him and we react to him so well. We have such a great relationship with him and it's because we trust him. And um, I think that is just so important to have that trust with the musician and the person standing on the podium. Along those same lines, if you would be willing to share perhaps an embarrassing memory of or something funny. that happened on stage or funny yeah. or unusual. <laughs> I can only think of a performance that was so traumatizing because of a wardrobe malfunction. Oh no. <laughs> Jackie is very familiar with that particular trauma. Yes, I played in a Frank Morelli masterclass at IDRS with a broken button blouse on my uh, shirt while playing with a sling. So, uh, <laughs> oh my God, no. Yes, I am a member of the uh, wardrobe malfunction support group. So glad to hear you have a fellow. Oh, okay, good. I'm, okay, cool. I'm not alone in this. Um, yeah, I, I was playing Mozart Sonata and um, I was giving a performance of it at Marlboro with Peter Wiley in the dining hall. And, you know, they turn off all the ACs. So you're already dripping with sweat. But I was wearing a flowy top. And by the third movement, it somehow got caught in one of the keys. And for the rest of the movement, all the weirdest sounds were coming out. <laughs> Was it a contemporary piece? She said it's Mozart. <laughs> oh, she said it's Mozart. I missed it. 
Oh, I thought you meant, yeah, it, it turned modern. <laughs> it's a contemporary interpretation. Very <laughs> avant-garde. Touching my yes. face with strings. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was no time to, to fix it. You're just playing the entire time. <laughs> It's fine. It's improvisation. It's improvisation. Yeah. yeah. But at least you didn't expose yourself like me. So. Uh... <laughs> oh no. It's these moments of humanity that really keep us, you know, humble and sane. As a humble and community-minded. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's hilarious. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie, for sharing. <laughs> I'm next. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now I'm nervous. <laughs> My last question is, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? I would say first and foremost, work hard and always be prepared. I also think that if you truly love classical music and it's your passion, then go for it 150%. Don't give up. And um, no matter what, stay true to yourself. Um, trust in the work that you're doing. Have confidence and you'll in, in your path, in your, your journey, in your process of the work that you're doing, you'll find your own voice. That is so beautiful. Catherine, this is such a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to have you on. And uh, I just want to like hang out with you and go have coffee or something. <laughs> I know, me too. You guys are such badass women. <laughs> oh my God, stop. <laughs> We hope you loved that interview with Catherine Chen. Our next interview is with Linda Beth Binkley, Associate Professor of Oboe at Central Michigan University. You can find us on social media at Facebook and Instagram. If Twitter's your thing, you can go there. We don't do, we neglect Twitter a little bit. A little. Uh, and if you want to rate and review and subscribe, we would greatly appreciate that. Galit. It's time to end this nerd parade. Jackie, you better start making reads. <laughs> <laughs>